We're going to start a new study this morning. The study in the book of Mark. Mark and actually the idea of service and sacrifice. But not just service and sacrifice as words and definitions and wondering exactly what comes next. But service and sacrifice in action. Mark is a book of action. But as we get ready to go into the book of Mark, I did want to preface it and this idea that he's going to give us in verse 1 of the beginning of the gospel, which is really the title of what we're going to look at today. But what is our approach as we come to the gospels? And I ask that because we live in an interesting day and age and we need to really understand when we turn to the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, what are we dealing with? How much leeway do we have to deal with it? And I ask that because the Gospels are historical, not mythical accounts. The Gospels are not fictional accounts of what's going on. They were written for a specific purpose. Mark gives us his purpose up front. I love Mark because Mark doesn't beat around the bush. Verse 1, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is what I'm going to tell you about. You read my book, you're going to hear about Jesus Christ. You're going to hear about the Gospel. You're going to hear about the fact that he is the Son of God, and that's what makes the Gospel so powerful. And as Mark gets into that, we need to realize that what he records and what all of the gospel writers record really did happen. Not only that, but they don't record everything that happened. You know, you you read the gospel of John and what did John say at the end of his gospel? These things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. But many other things Jesus did which aren't recorded in this book. He probably was referring to his gospel, but the fact of the matter is, many other things Jesus did that aren't recorded in any of the four gospels. But these are written. There's a purpose for it. The problem is, when you get part of a story and you don't get the whole story, what do you want to do? Fill in the blanks. What's the rest of the story? What wasn't I told? You know, there's a lot of information in this Gospels that we're not given, for example, about the background and the lives of the disciples. We know very little about their early lives. A lot of us don't have any information because God didn't give it to us. What about the, the boyhood of Jesus Christ? You know, fictional books have been written about the boyhood of Jesus Christ, but we're given very little. We're given what we need. We're given what the Spirit of God gave us. And I say that because we need to realize that the Gospels weren't written for our entertainment. And I bring this up, and if some of you want to take back your gift later, you can do that. But I bring it up because there are programs like The Chosen. And we watch The Chosen. And what have they tried to do? They're filling in all the blanks. We'll be careful because they filled in a, little bl- a lot of blanks with stuff that's not right. It didn't happen. And when we have these Gospels, they aren't for our entertainment, but they're for our instruction. You may have wondered why Mike decided to just, you know, I asked him to read out of Mark, and he decided to read out of Philippians today. That's not what happened. I I had Mike read out of Philippians for a very specific purpose, because as we read Philippians 1.27, it says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the Gospel of Christ. As we get into the book of Mark, we're going to talk about the Gospel. We're going to talk about what it is. We're going to talk about what it isn't. We're going to talk about how it changes lives. And that's exactly what Paul talked about in Philippians 1. He went on to say, So whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. 
reading the Gospels is enjoyable. You know, if I said we were going to have a Bible reading time in church, and I told you we were going to read the book of Leviticus tonight, how many of you would come? At least you're honest. How many of you would be excited about the fact that we're doing that? But if I said, you know, we're going to have a dramatic reading out of the Gospels, some of you might actually say, that sounds interesting. And, and I know I've heard in the hallways, and it's not necessarily wrong, so I'm not trying to beat anybody up, but when we were on our 15th, 16th week of Job, there were some folks who said, I can't wait to get to the book of Mark. Why is that? Because the Gospels are enjoyable to read. They're about people's lives. I'm not a huge, huge movie fan in many ways, but if I watch a movie, I love to watch those movies that are based on real stories. Things that happen in people's lives. Ways that people were changed. And the Gospels are real stories about people's lives and the way God changed their lives. But they're not written for our entertainment, they're written for our instruction. Paul went on to say that we might not be frightened by any of our opponents. Is that appropriate for today? Do Christians have opponents that could bring fear and worrying to our lives? And these books are written, the Gospels, so that we'll know how to stand, so that we know that we don't need to be frightened because nobody will attack us worse than they attack Jesus Christ. And at the end of the Gospel message, Jesus Christ is victorious. In spite of those who attack him. And then it goes on in this passage, and it says in verse 29, For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him. And the Gospels are about that. John, John wrote his Gospel specifically for that. So that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ and have life. Mark, for about the same reason. That's why he starts and says, The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He wants you to... Put your faith and trust in him, not just read about him. And Paul says it's for the sake that you might believe in him, not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Paul doesn't want you to be surprised if you suffer as a Christian. Mark doesn't want you to be surprised because Jesus didn't want you to be surprised. Could Jesus have told you, come to me and everything will be all right, and thought in the back of his mind, well, you know you are going to suffer, but you'll find that out down the road. He didn't do that, did he? He told the disciples, if they treat the Lord and Master like this, guess what? You're going to get some of the same treatment. And the Gospels are there to kind of give us an idea of what life here and now may be like. But they're also there to give us hope, because that's not where it ends. And it's a beautiful thing when we look at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, and it says, the beginning of the Gospel. Because Mark doesn't even give us the whole story. You've got to open up the book of Revelation to get the rest of the story. But Mark's going to give us the beginning as we go through there. And so our approach to these things, number one, these are historical real happenings. Number two, the Gospels, the four of them are written from four different perspectives, from four different men. Two of them walked with the Lord. Matthew and John walked with the Lord, saw it firsthand. Two of them did not, at least not all of those things. Mark was not an apostle. He was not a disciple. We think he probably was around, even though he's not mentioned in the Gospels. In fact, if you look at Mark uh, later in the book, about chapter 14 or 15, it talks about a young man who was following along at the time when Jesus was arrested in nothing but a loincloth, and they grabbed him and they trapped him, and they took his loincloth and he fled away, wearing nothing. Most commentators think that's Mark, only he didn't give you his name. Can you imagine why? 
You know, and so we look at it and we don't see that there, but there are people who were impacted and had the gospel message. And so we need to understand that. And they were inspired by God so that everything written in, those go- in this gospel is true. This conversation had not long ago overheard a conversation with someone talking to another person who, about the Bible. And say, well, the Bible's inspired of God. And they say, well, parts of it are. If you believe parts of the Gospels are inspired, if parts of it are all that is inspired and you can only trust part of it, then you can't trust any of it. It's all inspired. So you've got these different viewpoints of what happened from these different people, all inspired by God. And the Gospels are more than just biographical books. They are historical theologies. They teach us who Jesus Christ was. And the book of Mark, if we go into the book of Mark saying, Pastor, tell us another interesting story today. I kind of laughed because I ran into this, uh, the Babylon Bee, I don't recommend it for uh, your daily news, but it's kind of a sarcastic thing on on the internet. And this week, one of the articles that I ran across in the Babylon Bee was, a man in Ohio is doing great on his Bible reading this year because he went to the children's story Bible. And he's having no trouble keeping on. In fact, he's ahead on his Bible reading. And I don't want you to look at the book of Mark as, okay, Pastor, bring out the next story from the book of Mark and read us a story. There are fascinating stories in the book of Mark. The book of Mark is kind of interesting because it's fast-moving. We're going to talk about that. But it's not just stories. It's every one of the things in this book are here to teach us something. And I want us to go into this saying, God, teach me from the book of Mark. It's the shortest of the Gospels, and yet it is powerful and impactful on our lives. And as we look at the Gospels, we need to realize some of it's summarized, and none of it gives us an exhaustive account. There are things you just aren't going to know at the end of the day. That bothers me. God doesn't care if that bothers me, because he gave me everything I need. And so everything we need to learn from the perspective of Mark will be in here, if we'll just listen to it. And then finally... And Mark's no different than the rest. If you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you're going to find that those Gospels, as fascinated as we are with the life of Christ, are more dedicated to telling us about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ than anything else. Over 25% of that book, and most of those books, more percentage than that, involve the last week of Jesus Christ on earth and what he did for us. And yet, the life lessons and the life theology that's in there is important for us as we go through this. So as we look at these things, we need to keep this in mind. Quick overview of the Gospel of Mark. And I want to get to verse 1. I was going to do nothing but overview today, but verse 1 is so powerful, we've got to get there. So I'm going to kind of skim through some of this. I'm telling you right now, I'm not going to give you a wherewithal of everything on the introduction of the book of Mark. So if you want that, there's lots of stuff out there where you can get it. I'm going to give you bits and pieces that I think are important. But when I put all that together, I had 15 pages of introductory material on the book of Mark, and I thought they'll never sit here for the whole message. But there are some important things we need to know. So let's look at some of those important things. Number one, the Gospel of Mark is fast-moving and hard-hitting. If you don't stay with it, you miss it. If you don't stay with what Mark's saying, you're going to miss an important point that's going to take you out of it really quick. Because Mark doesn't waste any time. And we'll talk a little bit about why later. It's by far the shortest of the four Gospels. And it's noted as much for what it omits as what it includes. I really did... I planned on doing Mark after Job. I didn't know Job was going to take quite as long as it did. And if I had known that, I don't know if I would have had the courage to go into Mark. Because this is what we find. We are October 29th. We're about to go into Thanksgiving and Christmas season. 
Very Americanized holidays in some ways. Now, there's spiritual thoughts behind it. I'm not saying there's not. But people have expectations. And what they want to hear about is Bethlehem, Nazareth, angels, shepherds. You know what Mark leaves out in his book? There are, there's no genealogy of Christ. There's no miraculous birth narrative of Bethlehem. There's no shepherds and angels announcing the birth in the Gospel of Mark. There's no childhood at Nazareth. No visit to the temple when the parents leave and Jesus... Not that those things didn't happen, but you're not going to find them in the book of Mark. Mark doesn't cover those things. There's no sermon on the mount. What are you going to preach out of the book of Mark? That's a great place to park and preach. It's not in there. Not only that... There's only a few parables. Ben likes to preach parables. He doesn't go to Mark very often, does he? Mark's got about three or four parables all on the seed, but they're there for a reason. So as I got into Mark, I thought, wow, this emits a lot of stuff. But what Mark does in a rapid, firing succession of events describes to us the life and ministry of Jesus. And he's describing it to a Roman audience. And we'll talk about that in a minute and why we believe that. But a Roman Gentile audience, and he's trying to convince them of the fact that, number one, he's the Christ, the Son of God. The Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, who, number one, served. And why is he doing this in such a rapid-fire arrangement to Romans about a Messiah, a king, a ruler who served? Because that's not the picture of rulers that the Romans had. And so Mark is trying to teach them what the Son of God as a ruler is going to do. The Son of God, the ruler, the Christ, who suffered. Did the Caesars want to suffer? And so the Romans are trying to get their mind. And Peter is teaching Roman Christians what it means to be a Christian and what Jesus Christ did for them. And as he does so, the picture of a kingdom and a ruler isn't really computing well with the Romans. And so Mark is going back and quantifying all these things in Scripture so that they can study and learn what it really means to be a ruler. This, Jesus not only served, he suffered, he died. It's no fun to be a dead Caesar. But he rose again, and the Caesars didn't do that. And so Mark brings all of this in as he tries to rapidly and hard-hittingly go through this. Now the question becomes, again, who wrote this guy? Who is this Mark? And as I looked at this this week again, and as I was studying over it, I thought, you know, so many of these things we've just been taught and we take them for granted, don't you? Who wrote the book of Matthew? You can can talk. There's not as many of you out there today, but who wrote the book of Matthew? Yeah, that wasn't a trick question. Matthew, who wrote the book of Mark? Who wrote the book of Luke? None of them signed it. How do we know that? You know, Mark doesn't put his name anywhere in that gospel. Matthew neither. Neither does John. In fact, John's name doesn't even appear in his gospel. Luke. Luke talks about the man that he wrote the book for, but he never puts his own name in there. So how do we know those things? And I thought, if I was looking at that for the first time, how would I know that this was Mark? Well, the early church unanimously agreed that John Mark, the John Mark that we find, Barnabas' cousin, in the book of Acts, was the one that wrote this book. And I thought, okay, now who decided that? You You ever watch the news at night? And you hear, 34% of Americans believe and think, where did they get that percentage? You know, 87% of people that eat this get better. Well, how do they know that? 
You know, and sometimes they pull it out of the air and I start thinking, well, what church fathers? Because it's easy to say, early church fathers said. So I went into it and I won't give you all of the, the, the information I found, but many, many of the church fathers in the second, third century ascribed the book to John Mark. And that's how we know he wrote it because those were the guys that were alive back there when they were first getting the book. And so John Mark writes this book. Well, who's John Mark? His mother is Mary. She lives in Jerusalem, and it's a great meeting place for the church. If you look at Acts chapter 12, verse 12, the church used to meet in Mark's house. So Mark has a great heritage. Mark heard preaching and teaching and praying and singing as a young man growing up. And, and though he's never mentioned in the gospel, he's mentioned in the book of Acts. And his cousin is Barnabas, a huge personality in the beginning of the book of Acts. One of the first missionaries were the Apostle Paul. And they go on the first missionary journey. And it's Paul and it's Barnabas and it's John Mark. Can you imagine as a young man? A young man who loved the Lord, who watched the church in his house, who wanted to serve God, gets asked to go on a missionary trip with the greatest missionary of all time, the Apostle Paul. What was the problem? Mark didn't make it through that whole trip. We don't know why, but we know it didn't set well with Paul. And as you read through the book of Acts, they get ready to take a second trip. And Barnabas, the uncle, says, let's take John Mark. And the Apostle Paul says, okay. Is that what he said? The Apostle Paul said, there ain't no way. Now, again, when you read the book of Acts, do you think the Apostle Paul had an opinion from time to time? And when he decided that John Mark wasn't going with him, guess what? John Mark's not going with them. I read that and I at least find hope for the fact of, you know, do we ever have disagreements in the church? Do we ever have disagreements at Bethany Bible Church? No, not here. It's other churches that have disagreements. Uh, can we get over them? Because Paul and Barnabas had a huge disagreement. And again, I, I'm not even sure the Spirit of God doesn't really give us commentary on did they handle it well or not, but they split up. It got so contentious over John Mark and the fact that this young man would not stick with the stuff and left them that they went out and Paul took Silas and went one way and Barnabas took John Mark and went back uh, to the kind of the place of his birth and, and went back to Crete and Cyprus and all those places. And you look at this and you say, wow, that's too bad. But we find John Mark, the story of him doesn't end there. You see, I don't know what happened with John Mark and his uncle Barnabas, but the man matured and grew up. Not only that, but John Mark became a very close friend sometime along the way, and probably began at his house, with the Apostle Peter. Peter says in 1 Peter or chapter 5, verse 13, he refers to himself as a spiritual father figure, and Mark as his son. So at some time along the way, after the whole split up and the problems, John Mark gets transferred from Barnabas to Peter, and he ministers with Peter. And as a part of all of that, we get to the end of what's going on here in Paul's ministry. And Paul says some things about John Mark. You ever get angry and bitter and you can't get over it? You've got to give Paul at least some credit. Because Paul not only says some things about John Mark, but Paul says some wonderful things about John Mark. Just a couple of passages and then we'll move on. But it's going to help us understand John Mark as we go through this. First, in Colossians chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, Paul talks about fellow workers for the kingdom of God, proven to be a comfort to him, and he mentions among them John Mark. Fellow worker. 
one of a few people, there's only a couple people mentioned in that passage, that these are the few people that have been a comfort to me, and John Mark is one of them. Not only that, but later in his ministry, at the end of his ministry, 2 Timothy 4.11, he says, Luke alone is with me, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful for me to the ministry. Mark put his, got his act back together. And I think it's very, very interesting when we find out historically that he spent time with Peter. Did Peter know what it was like to fail? Denied Jesus Christ three times. Did Peter know what it was like to be restored? Did John Mark know what it was like to fail? Who did the Spirit of God put John Mark with? The one minister apostle who knew more than anyone else what it meant to fail and be restored. And God used him. And I say that because God does that for us today. You may be going through some things in your life that God's putting you through, just like he did Peter, to prepare you to minister to somebody else in a way that only you can. And in such a way, as we read this and as we get through the gospel of Mark, most of the early church fathers, again, will tell you that they believe that Mark got most of his stories from the book of Mark most of his theology from the book of Mark, from the preaching of Peter, who mentored him, who restored his heart and his life. So as we read through this book, as we see what Mark gives us, we are seeing the gospel through the eyes of Peter. Is it any wonder that we see immediately at least 41 times in the book? Could Peter move too fast? Could Peter put his foot in his mouth like nobody else because he didn't think before he spoke? And when he wrote a gospel, Peter lives that way. And God used it. And God uses his perspective through Mark, I think, as we go through this, because 41 times he's telling people, Jesus Christ was a man of action. And immediately he does this. And immediately he does that. And when God moves, God moves in powerful ways. And we're going to see that as we go through this gospel. So that's the author. Now, the date and the context. I've got pages and pages of speculation about the date. I'm not going to give them to you unless you ask me for them later. I'm just going to tell you the gospel was probably written somewhere around 55 to 65 A.D., it was probably written near the end of Peter's life. Some people think it was written just after Peter's death. And most of the early church fathers, again, will tell us, the book of Mark is here. We have this book. Well, number one, because the Spirit of God moved on Mark's heart, and we need this book. But number two, because Peter was giving all the oral teaching to the Roman Christians. And the Roman Christians said, what happens when Peter's gone? Or you ever have a sermon and you listen to 35, 40 minutes some guys, you listen to an hour, an hour and a half. I haven't done that to you yet. But, you know, you listen to it at the end, you think, hey, some of that was really good, but I didn't get it all down. Well, that's where the Roman Christians were. And so Mark begins through the eyes of the Apostle Peter writing things down. So we have them. And we ought to be very thankful for them because that's why we have them today. And so as we see this, we're going to see all this transpiring with the date and the context of what's happening here. A few other just minor things in the context. See how many pages we're rolling through all so fast. The context of the writing here as well. This book, this gospel, like no other gospel, is written for the Gentiles. How do we know that? As we read through this book and as we see what's going on here, we're seeing a gospel of the person and mission of Jesus Christ portrayed for Roman Christians who were undergoing persecution by Nero. So he wants them to understand the suffering servant who's victorious at the end of the day. It is so appropriate. And so 
in their day, and it's so in our day as well. He wrote for Gentile readers in particular, and we know that because there aren't many quotes from the Old Testament. Now I say that, and you know what we're going to see next week in verse 2? A quote from Isaiah from the Old Testament. Why? Because Mark is still giving to the Christians there, the Gentile Christians, the idea that the Old Testament's important. How many of you would rather study the New Testament than the Old Testament? How many of you get more excited about a series from the New Testament than from the Old Testament? If I announced next week that I decided to get away from Mark and we're going to have a series on the book of Isaiah for the next two years, how many of you would be excited about that? Yeah, I didn't think so. But Mark looks and says, you know what, you need that. You need the Old Testament because it explains to you who this Christ the Messiah is. It all points to him. He's the fulfillment of all that happens there. And it's even interesting in the context of his writing. Look there at verse 1. Turn to Mark chapter 1, 1 again. At verse 1, how does he start this whole book? The beginning of the gospel. Does that sound familiar when you think of any other verses in scripture? Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word. And Mark looks back and he says, I'm going to take that beginning, which got messed up so bad in the garden, that sin marred it. And throughout the whole Old Testament, we get the, stu- the, the, the story of how sin marred God and his God's people. And God promised redemption. And God promised that there would be a day when sin would be taken care of. And when Mark writes his gospel, he says, here's the beginning of God's promise from the very beginning. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15. When he prophesied that there was a Savior who had come. And so here we see Mark about to deal with these things in context. You also see in the book of Mark the fact that it, because it's written to Gentiles, a lot of Jewish things that are described in here are explained. I love the book of Mark because you read the Matthew's hard. The book of Matthew is tough to preach through because Matthew, he assumes he's writing to Jews so they understand what? Jewish traditions. Jewish customs, Jewish festivals. If I made you write down all the major Jewish festivals before you leave here, how many of you could have lunch today? I don't know if I could do it, and I've studied them. And so when Mark comes to these things, he'll mention something, but then he'll explain why it's there for us. And not only that, but he takes a lot of what he's doing in here, and it's interesting, when Mark, unlike any of the other gospel writers, when Mark refers to the Romans... He either refers them to them in a very neutral sense or even in chapter 15 in a little bit of a positive sense. Would Matthew ever refer to the Romans in a positive or neutral sense? You know Matthew doesn't like the Romans. It doesn't take long to figure that out. He worked for him as a tax collector. Jesus Christ straightened him out, but he didn't appreciate them. Does Luke say wonderful things about the Romans? But Mark, and not to be deceitful, but from his perspective teaching Roman Christians, he's kind of a little bit more neutral, as he mentions. And you'll see that as you go through the book. And we'll talk about that as we come to some of those places. So that's the context in the writing. Just a few things about the characteristics, and then we're going to tear apart verse 1 and be done this morning. But the characteristics of his gospel. Mark's style, number one. He is the shortest and the most compact. But the brevity of Mark, it really means two things. Number one, you've got less stories. Okay, You've got less stories in Mark than you've got in any of the other gospels. Probably then John, and then you've got Matthew and Luke that have compact lots of information in their Gospels. But the brevity of Mark is interesting because the stories that he does tell, 
He tells in more detail than most of the other Gospels. When you find a story in the book of Mark, Mark has a purpose for it in there. You see, he's moving very fast. Again, he's hard-hitting. He's fast-impacting with this Gospel. And so if he puts a story in there, it's not just to fill in the blanks of what happened that day. There's a reason for it. So as we get to the stories of the book of Mark, we need to ask ourselves, why are those there? Not only that, but he has an interesting style. Eight times in the book of Mark, as he starts telling a story... He interrupts himself in the middle of it with another story. You know, he's going to, Jesus is going to heal Jairus' daughter. And suddenly, in the middle of the story, this woman reaches out and touches his garment. And she's healed. And it has nothing to do with Jairus. But we get the whole story in the middle. But then we go back to the fact that his daughter and what Jesus Christ does and the whole healing. But those two stories work together as a unit to teach us about Jesus Christ. Mark didn't just do that because he was here, there, like like a squirrel running through the Gospels. He's got a purpose, and we need to look for those things as we go through this book. There's themes in this book. There's themes of discipleship. What does it mean to be a disciple? There's a lot of confusion about what it means to be a disciple of Christ. The book of Mark is going to teach us what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. There's themes like faith. There's more teaching about Gentiles in this book, Gospel of Mark, than any of the other Gospels. There's more of Jesus' encounters with the Gentiles. When you look at what Mark actually concentrates on, he concentrates on Jesus' ministry in Galilee and Jerusalem. In his Galilean ministry, he concentrates on the outskirts that he went to where he touched the lives of Gentiles. Isn't that amazing? Because Jesus was sent first to the Jews, and yet he loved the Gentiles. Any of you have an appreciation for that? If not for that, where would I be? Because I'm not Jewish. But Jesus' love is shown going through all of this in this book. And then there's some interesting things we'll study as we go there, but the commands of silence. When he heals somebody, he says, now don't tell anybody. Why would he do that? And in Mark, he does it over and over and over again. And we're going to look at what that means and why that is and why Mark brings that up. But that brings us to what Mark is doing here. Mark, like no other gospel, lays out right in the front end what he's up to. Look at Mark 1.1 again. We're just going to take a few minutes on this and then we'll close. But this is probably the most important thing you'll hear this morning. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, if you're not careful... And I'll be honest, I read through the whole book a couple of times while I was on vacation. And I read through it, and I didn't stop there very often. Why don't we stop at verse 1 of any of the books very often? Usually I look and I say, well, it's just introduced in the book. There's nothing important until you get past the introduction. Except with Mark, the most important message is right there in the introduction. Look at what Mark says here as we pull this apart just a little bit. Number one, we're going to start with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mark says, I want to talk to you in the next 16 chapters, and he didn't have 16 chapters split out with verses. We did that. But in my letter, in my writing, I'm going to tell you about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, when we hear the word gospel, what do we think of? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I think Mark was probably the earliest of the Gospels, and there are people who will debate that. But when Mark thought of the Gospel, he didn't think of four books. He didn't have the New Testament. So what was Mark talking about when he said the Gospel of Jesus Christ? What would the people of Mark's day have thought about when they heard that word, the Gospel? They would have thought about the fact that the Gospel, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, is good news. 
It's glad tidings. It was a word in Greek that was used after a battle when a herald would come back and say, we won, we were victorious. And so as Mark begins his book and people read this, he looks and he says, this is the beginning of a message of great news. And people would be thinking, I like great news. Yeah, how often when you hear somebody, somebody will come to you and say, I've got good news and bad news. I like the good news. How many of you really want to hear, they always ask you what you want first. It's like, give me the good news and keep the bad news to yourself. But nobody wants bad news, but good news gets exciting. And Mark is looking here and he's saying, look, this is a beginning of a message of great news. Of something that's going to impact your life. And not only that, but the beginning of it. We talked about Genesis 1.1. We talked about John 1.11. But Mark in his account, and you think about all that Mark covers. The ministry of Jesus Christ. The healings. Can you imagine being around when Jesus Christ was healing people who were legitimately sick? Casting out demons. There are several demons cast out of people in the book of Mark. People who were entrapped and Jesus sets them free. And all of these things in this book. And Mark saying, you know what, this is just the beginning because this is the story of Jesus Christ. And we're going to talk about that name in a minute. But it's the story of a king and the story doesn't end with my book. Have we reached the end yet? I think we're close. But we haven't quite reached the end because Jesus Christ will reign. Jesus Christ will rule. We have a new heaven and a new earth. We have an eternity to look forward to. I thought about that again yesterday. And these flowers up here are from Gary's memorial service. But, you know, Gary's with the Savior. He's in a new chapter of the gospel of Jesus Christ impacting his life because he put his faith and trust in Christ. And so Mark looks and he says, this is just the beginning of this good news. But Mark very carefully chooses the name. Look at the name that's found here. He says, this is the beginning of this great news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus, his human name. His name chosen by whom? Who chose Jesus' name? Remember when you were named? My kids laugh about this nowadays. You know, I named my firstborn, and I named him Joshua for the same reason that this, I mean, Jehovah's salvation I was all excited about that. And my wife picked the name for the second child, and he's Jordan. And so Joshua always teases him about, yeah, you were named after a muddy river. You know, and so, but as we're picking out these names, and then we got to the third child, and we had all these debates about what we were going to call him. And instead of Jedediah, he's Joel, and he thanks me to this day. And then my, my, my daughter Jessica, and my wife wanted to call her Janae, and Jessica didn't like Janae either, so she's happy with that. So I won three out of four. I was feeling pretty good. Now, did Mary and Joseph sit down and debate and say, okay, what are we going to call him? And one of them won. No, they didn't. The angel came to Joseph and said, you will call his name Jesus. Why? Because of what the name means. When I wanted names for my kids, I wanted them to mean something special, something that would hold them to their faith, something that would keep them grounded. And and, and as Jesus comes, his name is not to keep him grounded, but to keep us grounded in who he is. Because the name literally means Jehovah's salvation. So as Mark begins unpacking this gospel, he unpacks it in the name of the one who says, here is the one who comes, and he's God's salvation. He's the answer of everything from the Old Testament till now and for the future to come. You say, how do you know all that? Because the verse 2 will get there next week. But he starts with his name Jesus, and then he goes on and says, Jesus Christ. You realize Christ isn't a name. It's really a title. It's the Greek equivalent of the anointed one. The Messiah. 
And so as Mark looks, he's saying, this Jesus who will save his people from his sins is also the the anointed king that's been promised from ages past. And this is the great news about this, this one who's not only the savior, but he's also the ruler and king. And what was the problem that everybody had with Jesus during his earthly ministry? What were they waiting for? When are you going to relieve us from the rule of the Romans? You're the Messiah. And Jesus is looking and saying, that's not the kingdom I'm setting up this time. i got a spiritual kingdom happening in your heart. That's the good news. The gospel is the fact that though you are sinners destined for an eternity in hell because of your sin, I am going to live a sinless life. I am going to take your sin upon myself on the cross. I am going to suffer. I am going to die. I am going to rise again on the third day so that if you put your faith and trust in me, you might have life. And that's why Mark wrote this book. There's some great stories in there, and I I hope we do enjoy the stories of the book of Mark, but they're there to change our lives. They're there to take your faith from a head knowledge to a heart knowledge where I say, I put my faith and trust in this Jesus who is not only the Christ, but he finishes by saying he is the son of God. This takes it to a whole higher level. He's saying, this is the one, I'm going to give you good news about the one who has a unique and unparalleled relationship with God because he is God. And yet he does this for us. He is God. And yet he comes as a suffering servant. He is God, and he's the greatest, but he serves all. And he gives us this wonderful picture as his disciples fight about who will be greatest in the kingdom. He says, you want to be greatest? He could have told them, if you want to be greatest, be like like your Lord. But he said, if you want to be greatest, be the servant of all. And who was modeling that for them? Day after day after day. The Jesus, the Christ. The Son of God was the suffering servant. And so Mark is getting all excited as he gets into this book, and I hope you'll get a little bit of that excitement. I I am looking forward to going to the Gospel of Mark. Again, I've I've preached through other Gospels. I preached through John when I first got here, but I've never preached through Mark. But Mark is an exciting Gospel. It's hard-hitting. It's impactful. It's moving fast, so don't miss it, okay? Don't miss on Sundays. Because you'll miss some things that are going on there. But on top of that, it gives us a picture of Christ that's designed to change our lives. If you know the stories of Christ without knowing the Christ of the stories, and your life is not changed, you're headed for an eternity in hell. But if you take the stories of this book, and you know the Christ of the stories instead of the stories of Christ... He will change your life. If you put your faith and trust in him for salvation and for forgiveness of your sins, he will change your life. And that's what discipleship is all about. How many of you are perfect this morning? A couple of you are thinking, oh, well, I probably could raise my hand, but I don't want to embarrass the rest of you. But we're not, but we're headed there. That's called discipleship. And God's working in our lives. He's working because of the power of the gospel and the spirit working in our lives. And Mark is saying in the beginning of this, that's what my book is all about. If we come out of the study of Mark unchanged, we haven't heard the stories of Mark. God wants to change your life through Jesus Christ and the power of his spirit. Are you willing to let him do it? And more importantly than that, have you put your faith and trust in he and Christ and Christ alone as your savior? That was Mark, that's what Mark's going to point to. That's what he's going to move toward. That's going to be our question for you in coming days. Where do you stand with Jesus Christ? the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this book, and it's always hard getting through the introductory material, but it's important information because this 
material was written by men whose lives were impacted by the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was written by men who loved Jesus Christ and who stumbled and fell and had to get back up at times. And Lord, it was written by people like the people that are here in the church today. People like me. So God, I pray that you'll take this gospel, that you'll impress it deep upon not only our minds but our hearts. And God, that you'll change us. Help us to put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ alone as a result of what we're about to study. For it's in his name we pray.